This episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast is brought to you by 2006 Duke grad Dave Olverson. Dave recently moved from New York City back to Durham and instantly fell in love with the food, entertainment, and the community. He encourages Duke grads to look at Durham as a place to live. You will love it. Hey there, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 98, 90 freaking 8 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We are coming to you on an early Thursday morning, December 21st, and I am the host this week. I am Donald Wine. I am not in D.C. I am at my parents' house in Texas for the holidays, uh, and I hope that my other two co-hosts had a great Hanukkah. Uh, which has just recently ended. First off, in Denver, we have Sam Klein. Sam, how are you doing? Uh, good morning. I let you guys know that <clears throat> I was having some strange vision problems this morning, but they are they are clearing up slowly. So uh, I should be good to go today. I'm hoping that your vision problems were just chalked up to the fact that it is very, very early for you and I uh, over it- here, not on the East Coast. Yes, that it is. It is somewhat early, but we're gonna we're gonna get through it. I don't really know what was going on, so I think I'll be fine. Well, good, good. And we also have in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Jason Evans. Jason, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm a first time caller here. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Long time listener, first time caller. I just had a comment. Yes. <laughs> no, I have no other comment. What? There, you have to follow that up. What's your What's your comment? comment? It's got to be stupid, though. Did you want to oh, ask us something clever? I, I, I've got nothing. I got nothing. It's like that. That whole thing came really quickly. I got nothing. <laughs> well, we were we were prepared for you. I just don't think you were prepared for the the question part. But we'll we'll get you prepared. We're going to set you up right now. Um, let's start with the the good thing. Um, Evansville. We took on Evansville Purple Aces last night. Duke basketball. Uh, took on a team that was ranked 159th in Ken Palm, and it was their first game since the loss to Boston College. But after an 11-day absence, Duke got back on track, a 104-40 to victory. Uh, Jason, I'm going to start with you, and I'm going to start with this question. Holding a team to 40 points is an incredible feat, no matter who the opponent is or what team you are. But are you considering our defensive issues cured, or are you still in wait-and-see mode? I mean, you'd be crazy to say you're in anything but wait and see mode. You have to be because one game doesn't prove anything. That said, well, and I should add, one of my themes is going to be uh, this team plays really, really well at home. Um, uh, Duke, we shoot unbelievably better at home than we do on the road or in a neutral environment. Uh, and, and I think we probably play better defense at home. You're just more comfortable when you know the floor, when you, when you know the sight lines and everything like that. Um, so I, I, I want to be cautious about reading too much into uh, this, this absolute destruction of the Evansville Purple Aces, who, even though, as you point out, you know, they're like 150 or so in Ken Pomeroy's rankings. Um, they're not that bad a team. Uh, they were 10-2 and two coming into this game. Um, and, uh, you know, they're the kind of team that, in their conference, you know, will be competing for an NCAA bid. Um, not to say that they're that they'd be a lock or anything like that, but um, you know, Evansville is a decent club, and uh, in the Missouri Valley, and and Duke absolutely manhandled them. 
Um, and, and you asked about the defense, and, and that is definitely the place to start because that's been the big concern. Coming out of the Boston College game, we, we talked, you guys, you know, I, I went back all those years to look at Duke giving up three-pointers and, and how we were giving up three-pointers this year at an almost unprecedented rate. And if, uh, if you had asked me before the Evansville game what my biggest concern would be, it would be three-pointers because Evansville coming into this game was one of the best three-point shooting teams in the country. I think I saw some places they may have even been number one in the country in three-point percentage. They are a team that likes to shoot from deep and is very, very good at it. Duke extended their defense. Um, and you haven't, you haven't seen Duke play deny man-to-man like this in a couple years. Coach K has been backing off a little bit on the man-to-man because when you play deny like this, you have to be able to give really good help defense. And with young teams, it is tough to do that kind of thing. Um, you know, you're so worried about denying your man, you don't realize that someone else was denying their guy and their guy got the ball and he moved past him. And suddenly, you know, you're in a situation where someone's getting a layup or, you know, they're making a pass and the guy's getting an easy dunk. And Duke has backed off this kind of defense in recent years. But against Evansville, I mean, in the first half, did you guys see how much Duke was playing deny man-to-man? It was, I mean, it is, it is a demanding thing to put on young players. And Duke played great at it. Um, we forced 21 turnovers. That's a ton of turnovers. We had 13 steals. Uh, we, we blocked nine shots. I mean, those are, those are huge. 21 turnovers, 13 steals, nine blocked shots. Whew. I mean, you do that. And the other we team had a lot is, of those in the first half. Uh, I think it was 14 at the end of the first half. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the three-pointers, the thing to be concerned about with this Duke team, Evansville was only 5 of 14 from three. Um, I, I thought Duke did a really nice job of not giving them lots of easy three-point looks, um, not letting the guys who were more dangerous from three get their shots off. And, and look, you know, it's worth noting Evansville was missing several of their better players. That that mattered. You know, it's you know, no denying that. Of course, if you're missing good players, it, it's going to impact things. But But the dismantling that Duke did to them on defense – was was really impressive. Now I, I will freely admit, I uh, I had stuff going on last night. I watched this game on tape delay, so I knew the score. Um, my son, one of my sons, came back from college, and we sat down. We were watching the game together, and so I, I had a general idea of what the score was. And at one point in the first half, it was seven to seven. My son didn't know anything about the game, and I said to him, "I go, I go, man, I think Duke's about to go on about a seventy-five to twenty run." And he goes, "What?" And I'm like, "Wait, you'll see." <laughs> Think about that. At one point, you know, Jason, that was that was pretty cruel of you. It it was. But he he was sort of saying he was like, he's like, I can't believe we're having a tough time with these guys because it was seven to seven. And I go, I go, yeah, don't worry about it. Seventy five to twenty run coming. The the way Duke. Shut Evansville down and at the same time executed really, really well on the offensive end. Uh, look, this was the team. This was the team that was number one in the nation for for a long, long, long period of time. Although, you know, Sam, I'll toss to you and let me ask this about the offense. Uh, you know, making all those three-pointers at home, does, that mean, does it mean anything to you when we're able to do that? I mean, come on. <laughs> Wendell, Carter, so, Wendell the, Carter had three three-pointers in the season. He made four of seven last night. Yeah, I, I think that, that the offense, as good as it has been this year, is not going to look like that very often. There were a few things working in this team's favor, right? We had a lot of time off for, for the team to get their legs back and and be refreshed. They were playing an opponent who I think we can admit was 
overmatched even before the injuries. And, and by the time the game started, Evansville only had eight uh, healthy players. So they didn't even really have the ability to, to throw different guys out and try to, to pressure Duke more because that's what, that's what smaller teams are going to want to do, right? They're, they're going to want to overplay on defense and, and see if they can get, you know, steals and rebounds that they, that they wouldn't normally be able to get. That would be the, the formula for beating any sort of overpowering opponent. And Evansville just didn't have the, didn't have the personnel to do that last night. So uh, that, that was working against them. Uh, and then of course the home crowd, um, Duke always plays pretty well in Cameron. They rarely lose, and and certainly not to an, an opponent like this. They're you know they might they might drop a, a game to a good ACC team, but I don't think that overall there's a ton we can take from this other than the fact that it, it's nice that they that they were confident coming out. They didn't look sluggish at the beginning for very long. It, it did take a few minutes, but by the end of the first half they were they were cruising to an easy victory. And you know not to um, not to change the subject too much, but it's much better than than what the folks down the street from Duke can say about their game against uh, against Wofford because it looks like the Tar Heels um, took a loss to a to a pretty bad team on their home floor, which is great. But I don't think that there's there's a lot we can take from this. I do want to talk a little bit here and then a little bit um, as we look ahead to Florida State in the second ACC game about the three point defense because as we as you mentioned, Evansville is one of the best teams, I think maybe the best team in the country in terms of three-point percentage coming into the game. And that was probably what they wanted to do was was uh, was to take those, to find those threes and take them. Duke only let them shoot, as you said, 14 threes. They only made five of them. I like I, I like the three-point attempts looking at, at that number. Knowing that, that a team that focuses on that kind of thing only took 14 shots is great because as we'll as we'll talk a little bit in the Florida State preview, Florida State likes to take a lot of threes, and and denying that is going to be a key part of the defense against the Seminoles, and it's something that Duke has not been good at so far this season. So I, I like to see the team focusing on chasing opponents off the three-point line, making them uncomfortable, try to get them taking mid-range shots or or throwing the ball down low where Duke does seem to be able to to defend at least a little bit. Um, with with Carter and Bagley and and some of the other guys, we didn't even get to see Delorier. Sounds like he had some kind of minor injury that that is going to be cleared up by next week. So yeah, they uh, said t- tightness in his in his hamstrings. I think yeah, yeah. and, and it, it sounded like something that he would play through if they were playing in an important game. But I think that everybody sort of knew going in that Duke would be able to win this game pretty easily, and they did. Justin by the Robinson way, was getting minutes in the first. I was going to say so. by the way the the fact that Delorier was out. We found out that Duke's fourth big man, uh, or I'm sorry, I guess fifth big man, the third big man off the bench is not Antonio Vrankovic. It is it is Justin Robinson, and and who Justin Robinson who acquitted himself well. So um, yeah, for him. yeah, a little strange for Vrankovic only because he's a junior, right? Um, or is he a sophomore? And I just keep forgetting this. No, he's a junior. He's a, he's junior. a junior, and it's a little disappointing that he can't carve out minutes. But you know, it doesn't seem like. You know, it doesn't seem like he's necessarily needed. Um, we'll see. We'll see going forward. I, it doesn't. You know, the 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 big man depth. I think I was more concerned about at the beginning of the season than I am now, only because it seems like Carter has some tendency for foul trouble. Marquise Bolden certainly still does, but it's not so much for either of them that that we'll get to an end game situation where both of them are fouled out, and it has to be 
Bagley and Delorier and and they can't guard, you know, some some really big uh, guy like like Florida State always seems to have or, or some some other ACC team. So I think I was a little bit concerned that the inexperience was going to catch them. But so far, it hasn't really the the fouling out hasn't hasn't been a problem yet. But I'm, I'm I want to see how that looks going forward. Yeah, I think the one thing that I when you look at the stats, uh, I, I was with you. I watched a little bit of the game here and there last night and then watched it in full after knowing the score. The one thing that I always we always talk about the old Duke teams would always pride themselves on shooting or making more free throws than the other team attempted. And we did that last night. We we made 10 uh, of 13 and Evansville was five of six. But that's not the real stat here. The stat is that we made more three pointers than Evansville attempted. We were 16 for 26 while they were five for 14. And I think with a team that came into the, the, the game ranked very high in terms of three-point shooting percentage, that was a really big step for me um, in the, as far as the defense not forcing that many jumpers because if you can't, if you don't shoot that many, then you can't make them and you can't climb back into a game. And I think that was really a, a really key stat in, in the improvement of our perimeter defense. The one thing that I also note on turnovers, you know, Jason mentioned that we, we forced 21 of them and I think it was 14 or 15 in the first half. We had 39 points off of those turnovers and Evansville only had two. That's what you want to see. Um, I mean, it's not always going to be that big a disparity, but I think you want to have turnovers. If you're going to force turnovers, you want to capitalize off of them. And we did that a lot last night. And I think that was really good. So you talked about stats for a second, Donald. There's a stat I want to bring up. Um, And and like I said, I don't want to to dwell too much on on Duke's offense because I think we play so, so much better at home. We shoot so much better at home than we do outside of home. But uh, there is a stat that is just freaking unbelievable from this game. Did you guys see how many assists that Duke had? I know that it was a big, beautiful 32. Duke had 32 assists on 39 baskets. That's crazy. That is, uh, that is just, that's a, that's a ridiculous 32 assists. First of all, 32 assists is, is ridiculous, but 32 assists on 39 baskets. I mean, it shows you how well these guys are moving the ball. It shows you that they're they're doing a really nice job of putting their teammates in places where they can succeed. Um, and, and look, we've had other games this season, not quite like this one, but we've had other games where Duke's assist total has, <coughs> has been really, really high. This is clearly a team that does... Uh, a, a really nice job of moving the ball around. Uh, we see lots of good big to big passing. Marvin Bagley had four assists last night. Um, uh, but but to, to me, the, the biggest thing is we are finding ways to put guys in places where they can succeed. And, and I, I just feel like the, the time off we've had has, has added to that even more. These guys are getting more and more comfortable playing together. We've talked a lot about the defense. Now we've seen it on the defensive end of the floor. But, uh, but uh, you know, I thought, uh, I thought on offense, you know, our ball movement was absolutely incredible. Duvall and and Goldwire, our two point guards, combined for 15 assists and one turnover. I think a 15 to one assist turnover ratio. Yeah, I'll take that. That's not bad. It's okay. You know, we did. We haven't even mentioned Wendell Carter. Wendell Carter went for 27 points in 18 minutes, and he made four <laughs> three pointers. That's pretty good. 
Yeah. You know, for a, he made for almost a as many three-pointers as points. all of Evans. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, oh, there were there was a time. <laughs> I don't I, know what 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 more do you want to say about him? The guy he was all over the place, and he had the one he had the one really ferocious block. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yes. You know, really like game that was uh, that was scary. He could have blocked it twice. I wish <laughs> yeah. I'd bothered. I wish I'd bothered to check it. I think there may have been a point in the second half when Wendell Carter was outscoring Evansville. I think that's possible. I, I wish I'd bothered to check that because they were, you know, they were down in the. Um, in the twenties, uh, like in the low twenties, like halfway through the second half. Well, you know that the most efficient way to check that is to go back to the tape and wait for the uh, for the fans to start doing the Wendell's winning cheer, right? Yes, yeah, you're right. I think I think that maybe we used to do that. We used to do that for JJ a fair amount. Yeah. By the way, so Carter surpassed twenty five points. I think that means that we now have had four. Blue Devils passed 25 points in some game this season, which was one of our preseason prediction things. Carter, yeah. Bagley, Allen, and I think Trent did, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. we have, and I think four was my number. So no one else is getting past four. No I, one else is getting I past think, 25. I think Duval might get there. We'll see. I think, yeah, he's been close. He had a 22 or 23 point game. Uh, so I think my, my goal of, I think I put six or, or maybe I put five. I'm not sure. We'll have to go back and check. Uh, we can check the tape at a, yeah. at a later date. Okay, guys. Well, with the exception of a February 3rd game against St. John's, Duke is now done with non-conference plays. So in 10 days, on December 30th, we will reopen the ACC slate by taking on Florida State at home. Uh, Sam, you've done a little homework on the Seminoles, so tell us what can we expect from this game? So I mentioned it when we were talking about as an Evansville. The key to this game is keeping Florida State off the three-point line. This Florida State team is actually a little different than what we're used to in the past. I think we've we've seen a lot of Florida State teams in recent years that had a lot of big guys, and they were able to kind of muscle Duke around if they were going to have success. This team is much more reliant on shooting. They take 22 threes a game, and in their They've only lost one game so far this season. That was to Oklahoma State just recently. Oklahoma State limited Florida State to say, taking 15 three-pointers. The only other game that FSU has played that was relatively close was a road win against Rutgers that they won by five points. Again, Rutgers kept them to only 16 three-pointers. They don't shoot a particularly great percentage, but they do have a few guys that are really good shooters. So they're led by uh, junior guard Terrence Mann. You guys might remember him from previous years because he's been a, he's been a real player for them. He's kind of the most, uh, most prominent returning player on this team. In uh, last year, of course, they had Xavier Rattan Mays and Dwayne Bacon and their big guy, Jonathan Isaac. Those guys are all gone. They've all left early or, or graduated. And uh, so Mann is kind of, <laughs> to pardon the expression, Mann is the man now for Florida State. He averages 16 points and six rebounds and three assists. So he's kind of all over the place for them. And uh, and he did have one pretty good game last year when Florida State beat Duke in Tallahassee going for 13 and seven. But the the key for Duke, like I said, is the three-point shooting. Shutting down um, Phil Kofer and Brian Angola and and MJ Walker. Those are the, those are the really good three-point shooters for Florida State. If Duke can manage to get the ball out of their hands when when they get perimeter looks and uh, and force them kind of to move it inside. 
then Duke's going to have success against them. They are a um, pretty balanced team as far as the offense and defense goes. They're 45th on offense in Ken Palm and 25th on defense. So um, Duke is going to have to is going to have to kind of be alert at, at both ends of the court. They're 30th overall in Ken Palm, and like I said, only one loss so far this year. So we know that Florida State every year is a well-coached team. We know that Duke sometimes has trouble with them, although this game is in Cameron. And like we said, Duke doesn't often lose in Cameron. I expect Duke to win this game. I don't think they're going to blow them out unless, check the three-point shots. If Florida State is taking, uh, like if, if we get to halftime, Florida State's only taking six or seven three-pointers, Duke's going to be cruising to a victory. So the thing I'll say about Florida State, I, I watched them play Florida a couple couple weeks ago. Uh, a very, very impressive win for them. They looked really good doing it. This Florida State team is remarkably long and athletic. Um, other than C.J. Walker's 6'1", other than C.J. Walker, it felt like every other guy on the floor was like between 6'8 and, um, and, and 7 feet, or 6'6 six, six and 7 feet, uh, with arms that were like down to their ankles. And, and they just fly all over the floor. They, they do a really good job of, of a lot of different guys getting rebounds. And uh, I, I, I think that they're, um, they're, they're definitely going to be a tough, tough test for the Devils. You know, one thing, we're a little lucky. Um, they, have that, they have that giant, um, Chris Kumaji, uh, who's 7'4". They, they always have a giant. That's, well, that's part of the Kuma- deal, right? They used to have Michael Ojo. I don't think he's there anymore, though. Right. Uh, no, he's not. But Kumaji is seven four. I mean, that is that is really big. He he's he has the dreaded lower extremity injury. Um, he got it uh, almost a month ago, and he was supposed to be going to be out like four to six weeks um, at a minimum. Uh, a, a, and so I'm I'm pretty sure he's he's missed like five or six games in a row. I'm pretty sure he won't be around for this game. He might come back, but it'll be good for them not to have him because he's that kind of height um, seven four, and he's also long. Uh, like, like you could be seven four and not long. What am I even talking about? Uh, <laughs> but that well, kind of height. Plumley was like seven one, and his wingspan was like six eleven. Yeah, that's true. You're right. right. Yes, you that's what they call him the T Rex. The T Rex because he had just short arms. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, you know, I think it's good that they're going to be missing Kumaji. Um, I, this is a, it's a good Florida State team. I'm not sure we know how good it is because other than that game against Florida and they played Oklahoma State. They beat Florida. They lost to Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State is is good. They're not great, but they're they're good. Um, Florida State just hasn't played anyone. Like if you look at Ken Palm, Florida State's uh, strength of schedule is two ninety one. I mean that's not a good strength of schedule. They have they've played a very easy schedule so far. They've got an impressive record. They're ten and one against it, but um, they really they haven't tested themselves very much. And uh, and and this is this is a you know a, a big game. To determine whether they're, you know, for real or or a little bit of a of a mirage, you know, created by playing a, a a relatively easy early season schedule. Although there was a lot of optimism for them coming into the season that they would be not maybe winning the conference regular season, like they they were expected to be worse than say Duke and Virginia and North Carolina and perhaps Notre Dame. But right in that discussion, right below them, like with Miami, who now looks really strong, um, Florida state certainly looks like a tournament team. It, it remains to be seen if they're like a three, four seed or more like a seven, eight, nine seed. Yeah, no, no, I think that's accurate. Um, and I think a lot of the, the optimism about this team was that they were going to be exactly what they've been, you know, a, a, a balanced team, 
um, with a, a lot of different guys who can hurt you. You know, if it's not man, it's Kofer. If it's not man and Kofer, it's Angola or Walker. Um, you know, they've got a lot of a lot of different guys who can who can cause problems for teams. They're they're deep. I mean, it feels like it feels like they always Florida State always is bringing guys at you in waves. You know, and they're figuring out who's having a good game, and then that guy gets more playing time than the other guy. And, um, and Terrence Mann is the leading uh, minutes getter on this team, and he doesn't even average 30 minutes a game, which it stands in contrast to Duke, not only this season, but almost every year where they have often three or four guys who average 30 minutes a game. And, and this year, you know, Allen plays almost every minute. Duvall plays almost every minute. Bagley, it seems, plays almost every minute. So, um, yeah, Florida State has a lot more dudes. They, they rotate off the bench to, to throw at you. And like you said, Jason... They always have that length, and and that can be uh, that can be concerning for a team if they're not on top of their game offensively. I think that Duke should be able to to still get their offense against Florida State, but it it will be more challenging, I think, than it's been the last few games. And and the other thing I want to mention about Florida State is the game against us begins a absolute gauntlet for them. Um, I, I, so they're ten and one right now. Um, they play, I think it's Southern Miss that they have. Uh, so they're probably going to be 11 and one coming into the game against us. Um, I won't even be mildly surprised if they lose five, six, seven, maybe even more games in a row. Are you ready for their schedule? You want to hear the Florida State schedule starting with our game? They play at Duke. Then three days later, they play UNC. Then four days later, they play at Miami. Then three days after that, they play Louisville. Then three days after that, they play Syracuse. Then they're at BC. Then they're at Virginia Tech. Uh, th- there isn't an easy game. I mean, you know, this part of this is the ACC. The ACC is tough, but Duke, UNC, Miami, Louisville, Syracuse as your first five ACC games. Wow, oh, that is that is not going to be easy. And Florida um, State fans had beef with that when the schedule first came out back in you know early September. Um, and they have good reason for it because that is a that is a murderous row of teams. Yeah, Duke, UNC, and Miami all all three of those teams are ranked in the top six nationally, and they're playing two of the games on the road. They get to start the new year playing two top ten teams on the road, and the only home game they have is UNC. It's like wow, I, it, you know, th- it could be a tough season for them. It could be really really tough if if they get off to a bad start and they get down on themselves. This podcast is brought to you by 2006 grad Dave Olverson. Dave recently moved from New York City back to Durham and is amazed at how much there is to do around town. In addition to all the Duke sporting events, uh, DPAC has top-rated Broadway shows, including Hamilton next year. Uh, There's great hiking, museums, community events, and a thriving downtown with great breweries, stores, and a beautiful setting. So if you have any questions about life in Durham, you can email Dave at DurhamDaveDBR at gmail.com. That's DurhamDaveDBR at gmail.com. David, thank you so much for sponsoring the DBR podcast. Okay, a quick note. Uh, we we wanted to mention that uh, in and the departure from previous years, there was a early signing period yesterday in recruiting, but we're not talking about basketball. We're talking about football. Uh, we're not going to get into the specifics of the, of the recruiting class because there were limits to uh, how many uh, recruits were signed. 
Uh, it was a it was a limit of fifteen uh, players per school. Uh, but we want to let you guys know that that did happen yesterday uh, for the first time. And Duke, uh, like many of the top uh, programs in the country, filled their recruiting class uh, or, or recruiting period fifteen uh, of players. Now on in February, I believe it's on February third. There is going to be the main signing day where you can sign up to twenty five. Uh, it will be ten more. But I, I just wanted to let you know that you know in previous years. And Sam can attest to this uh, as well. Signing a full class was not necessarily a given uh, at Duke University, and I think it's great that not only were uh, that David Cutcliffe and the staff signed 15 guys, but they did it basically immediately. They, I think uh, uh, Duke football put out a, a a picture on Twitter of of, of Dave uh, of Dave Cutcliffe just kind of lounging in in his office uh, about five minutes after signing period had opened. Uh, because we had signed all 15 guys, uh, which I think is kind of remarkable. Um, we'll get into specifics of the recruiting, but you guys have any thoughts on the actual like day in itself and, and how it works? I, I I remain impressed that Duke maintain like keeps the drama low when it comes to the recruiting. There's a lot of stories that that always um, that always come out about guys flipping their commitments late. I know that Duke has had a little bit of of flipped commitment issues, but nothing like right at signing day. And the guys that they do get to commit all send in their letters like first thing in the morning. And and that's all good. I, I'm not sure that Duke is ever going to get to a point where they're recruiting so many five stars that they have to get into these crazy recruiting battles with all the top schools or anything. But if they get kids and they get them to commit, then it's a good thing. And, and you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to let my, um, let my sports fandom tell me that you know, someone's doing something definitely the right way, but it does seem like, like Coach Cutcliffe's program identifies kids who want to be there, gives them the opportunity, and and you know, makes them feel like the commitment is worth something because Duke doesn't often have those decommitment issues. So I'm I'm happy for that. I don't really know, you know, much about reading into like which guys we got and how good they are and and where they project to be in in two three years when they're really getting playing time. But just from the standpoint of kind of the the public relations of the whole thing duke seems to be doing a pretty good job on the on the football recruiting you know the thing i'll say about the early signing day is football to me has had a problem for a college football has had a problem for a while because there's so much of this flipping there's you know a kid makes a commit in basketball when a kid says i'm committed to the school everyone else backs off and it's considered a done deal. In football, a kid says, I'm committed, and the other teams are like, yeah, we don't care. It doesn't matter. We're continuing to recruit you. It's like commitments don't even matter. Um, and, and it's especially weird because you'll see, I, I, I don't follow any of the recruits on Twitter, but I'll follow some of the, some of the writers who, who cover this stuff, and they'll, they'll like retweet or, or favorite tweets from, from players whose bios will be like, you know, committed to to Iowa like Hawkeyes class of 2020 or whatever and then and then and then they'll retweet like just received my 16th offer from University of Michigan and you're like what I thought you're thought you're going to Iowa it, it the whole thing is is very strange to me well yeah and and these kids you know using your example the kid will be committed to Iowa and he'll say taking my recruiting visit to Ohio State next week and you're like wait I, I thought you were committed to Iowa what does this mean I mean in in college football there's there's this term soft commit like those that does a commitment doesn't mean oh i'm only a little bit committed you can't be a little bit pregnant you can't be a little bit committed 
Um, it, it, you know, to me, it doesn't make any sense. And something that's always bothered me about college football recruiting and this early signing period has alleviated some of that. It, it allows kids to, to put their name on the dotted line in a way that can't be pulled back. And, and it, so other schools then have to back off. Um, and I think that's a, a really good thing for, for the sport of college football, because you would see kids flipping at the last minute. And if you're a school that was counting on a player, you know, oh, we need an offensive lineman. Well, we got Billy Bob, who's going to come in and be our offensive lineman. He's committed to us. And then at the very last minute, Billy Bob changes his mind. And you don't have room to to go find someone else, to find someone new, because everyone else has already committed someplace else. So I like having an early signing period. I think it's a good thing for college football. So in that regard, I'm I'm pleased with it. And I also want to point out, uh, Duke did Duke's class. Um, while it's not huge, we got 15 commitments. We don't have other guys who haven't signed yet. Um, uh, the quality of the class is pretty good. Like if you look at recruiting rankings, um, most of them have Duke like as the 12th best class or so in the ACC. And you may be like 12th out of 14 schools. That's not that good. If you look at the average of our recruited kids, we're like seventh or eighth in the ACC. So what cut did is he got 15 kids who are quality kids that he knows can contribute to the program. And he did, he hasn't bothered to fill out the rest of the class yet with, with players that he's not sure will, will have a, a, a big impact. So, uh, so it, it's a good class and it continues a good trend of David Cutcliffe bringing in high quality um, kids who are committed to Duke and who are helping Duke succeed and pretty soon play in yet another bowl game. Yeah. Bowl game. Hey, we're playing in a bowl game in like, five days guys why don't we talk about that for a minute uh duke football is traveling to detroit they're playing at ford field against northern illinois in the quick lane bowl it's going to be on december 26th 5 15 uh eastern time kickoff on i believe espn or espn2 one or the other uh but uh guys give me your quick uh what you want to see in other than a victory because i think we're all in in that boat uh but let's what do you guys want to see from uh, the Duke Blue Devils as we take on Northern Illinois in uh, the Quick Lane Bowl. Sam, I'll start with you. So there isn't anything specific. I think that I I'm excited for. I mean, not that you know, it's nice to win the the bowl game. It's nice to finish with a with a winning record. But really, what teams like Duke who are not playing for championships at this moment are using the bowl games for is to get better for next year. So. I would like to focus on the offense. I want to talk about Daniel Jones kind of reestablishing himself. He had sort of an up and down season this year. Not as good, I think, as as the season that we hoped and expected he would have. So I want to see him carry the offense a little more. I don't think Northern Illinois quite has the quite has the guys to keep up with Duke. Uh, Duke is going to be favored in this game. Northern Illinois has had some injuries coming in. So I want to see Daniel Jones take more control of the offense be able to run it and pass it the way that we saw early in the season. Um, because, because the, the bowl game, I think we're, we're supposed to treat it as sort of the indicator for what's going to happen next year. And again, I don't think on the recruiting front that we got any, any skill players who are going to be impact guys from, from day one. So the, the skill guys who we saw this year largely are going to be the guys we see next year. And, and I want to see Jones uh, perform well. And, and then to talk about, one of Jason's favorite players, Britton Brown 
is going to be back next season and he's going to be carrying the load at running back because Sean Wilson's going to graduate and I want to see what he can do. Um, maybe have his, his role increase uh, in the bowl game and, and then uh, going forward into spring practice. So, you know, speaking of Sean Wilson, the Northern Illinois version of Sean Wilson, Jordan Huff, a senior running back who really carries the load for them. Um, uh, he rushed for 740 yards this season, even though he missed a few games because of injury. Uh, you mentioned injuries. Jordan Huff is injured for Northern Illinois, will not play in this game. So they're missing their version of Sean, of Sean Wilson. That's, you know, that's a big deal. And, uh, you know, Donald, you were asking what, what you're looking for in this game. I'm looking for Duke's defense to really dominate. Um, Northern Illinois is not a great offensive team, and the fact that they're going to be missing Jordan Huff means that they're missing an important part of their attack. I think Duke has succeeded mostly this year because of the, the quality of the defense. Um, Northern Illinois has, has a good dual threat QB named Marcus Childers, but he's, he's just a freshman. Um, and, and he doesn't, he doesn't pass a ton. Um, and, and I really think that, you know, without, without their best running back, um, this may be a game where Duke can put some pressure on their QB and where the defense should really be able to, uh, to, to keep Northern Illinois under control. I would you know, I would guess that Northern Illinois will have trouble scoring points or so against Duke, um, and and I like our chances. If our if our offense plays the way it was playing at the very very end of the season, not the middle of the season. The middle of the season, our offense was terrible. But if it plays the way it was playing toward the end of the season, this Duke team should win this game, and and Donald should have a fun time watching it. I, I certainly hope so. Uh, to echo all of you guys, I think that you know, adding to that, one thing I do want to see is big plays and that's on offense and defense. The reason why when you're watching all these bowl games, I mean, half the times, you know, people are, are watching all these bowl games and they don't know what game is on. They just know it's a football game. Uh, and, and it's not a lot of memorable moments from some of these games. I'd like us to see, you know, other than, you know, the, the offense defense, I want to see them make plays that will be talked about uh, at the end of this co college football season. You know, they're, the games kind of increase in importance and a lot of people don't think these bowl games are important. Well, they are for some of these kids. And I think if they can make big plays that are, you know, something that people talk about, they're like, Oh man, Britton Brown had that 75 yard run or, you know, uh, Brian Fields had that pick, pick six, whatever the big play is. I want to see some of those because I want people to talk about uh, some of these guys in, in the season that they did have and leave them with a lasting impact that will carry in the next season. Um, that's obviously, you know, in addition to winning the game, in addition to being good on, on both sides of the ball, uh, I want them to to have something that people go, ooh, that, that Britton Brown guy, he's going to be really good next year. I can't wait to see him play. Leave people something to think about uh, for the offseason and for next season. Okay, we are going to wrap, start wrapping this podcast up. We will start with player of the week, and uh, I will turn to you, Jason. Who Who is your player of the week? So I'm going to give you a player of the week, but then I want to talk about someone else. The player of the week is Wendell Carter Jr. We only played one game. He had 27 points in 18 minutes. He had four of seven three-pointers. Wendell Carter, um, to me, was a clear, clear player. I mean, it, he established the tone for Duke. Uh, Evansville said, we're going to let that guy shoot. We're not going to let the other guy shoot from the outside. Wendell Carter said, uh, you're making a mistake. Um, but I... I want to mention, 
you know, uh, we focus so much on stats and offense. Um, my backup player of the week is the combination of Trevon Duvall and Jordan Goldwire. Um, I mentioned earlier they had 15 assists, but they're my backup player of the week because I thought their perimeter defense, their ability to pressure the Evansville guards was truly, and, and I should add Gary Trent. I think Gary Trent also did a great job at this. Really impressive the way we pressured the Evansville guards, um, made them uncomfortable, kept Evansville from getting into any kind of offensive set um, that, that, they, that they were happy with. Duvall, Trent, and Goldwire combined for eight steals. That's like a big, big number. Um, so uh, so even though I named Wendell Carter my player of the week, I'm giving a special shout-out, honorable mention, for the defense and the defensive pressure we saw from Duvall, Goldwire, and Trent. Sam? I feel like I would just echo everything that Jason said. There's not a whole lot controversial about saying that Carter was the player of the week. He he certainly showed out in this game. And I don't know. I don't really I don't really have much to add on top of what he said. So um ditto to uh to Jason. Uh I am also going to make it three for three and go with Wendell Carter uh at, for all the reasons that you guys said. Uh but I also want to throw in a plug for Justin Robinson uh because I'll tell you I was boarding a plane last night and I you know was watching the game on my phone and I looked down and I'm like Justin Robinson is in this game and there's eight minutes left in the first half. What happened? And it wasn't because anything bad happens because this guy was playing some good ball. Uh, and, and he did it again in the second half. I know it was a lot of garbage time in this game, uh, but I want to give a shout out to him because I think that he, uh, you know, Justin Robinson, friend of the podcast, um, played really well last night uh, in the minutes that he got. And as a result, you know, it is weird. We might see, you know, some of these minutes, uh, come in some really key moments. That's going to be something that we're going to need down the stretch. Uh, someone deep on the bench who may be called upon to do some uh, extraordinary things later on in the season. Could it be Justin Robinson? I don't know, but I think last night was a big first step for that. Uh, so Donald, shout out to him. Are you, are you suggesting that, that 2018 Justin Robinson is 2015 Grayson Allen? Possibly. I'm, well, I'm in for Only that. time will tell. I'm in for that. I'll say this about what Justin Robinson did. Um, it says to me that he's been playing really, really well in practice uh -huh. because, uh, you know, when you, when you heard that Delorier wasn't going to play in this game, um, I, you know, if you'd said to me, okay, so which big man is going to sort of move up in the rotation? I would have said, well, Vrankovic. And if you'd said, well, no, no, but uh, you know, if, if they need like a more of a power forward, rather a center, I would have said, I guess Jack White then. Um, I would not have gotten to Justin Robinson, um, um, uh, you know, as quickly as, as Kay went there. And I think that's a sign that Robinson has really been playing well in practice. He has played well in games when he's gotten in, but th those tend to be scrub minutes. I'm not sure Coach Kay's even really paying attention that much. Um, uh, so I, I, my bet is Robinson has been working really, really hard and, and it's starting to pay off in, in meaningful minutes. And that's just great for him. I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased for the guy. Now we're going to do parting shots, and uh, Jason has a big one, so I'm going to start with Jason. Yeah, so for my parting shot, I want to talk about uh, LeVar Ball. And, oh, God, I mean, I... Do you, do you want to talk about LeVar you, Ball? Do you want to? Are you sure? Those are words that I did not want to hear come out of my mouth. I want to talk about LeVar Ball. Those are whew, uh, five say words. That, that, say that you have to talk about him and that you don't actually want to. 
Yes, and, that and might I'll be better. You, I'll give you. I'll give you slightly more credit for it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the reason I'm going to talk about him is because he he has announced that he is going to create the Junior Basketball Association, the JBA, um, uh, and that it will be a basketball league for high school graduates who don't want to bother with going to college, who just they want to spend a year um, or maybe more than a year. Um, not pursuing their education, but only pursuing their basketball dreams. Uh, he says that his uh, big baller brand um, clothing line will be able to fund all this. I'm not sure that's true, but that's what he claims. Have you guys uh, says, seen any of that stuff anywhere? I mean, it, it might yes, just be that I, I, I was going to say, it might just be that I live in like, you know, whitest middle America city, but um, I haven't seen any of it yet. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think big baller brand is really big in Denver. But yeah. my bet is that L.A., Chicago, and New York, and Miami. Um, and D.C., they, apparently. And <laughs> D.C. Yes, there you go. LeVar Ball says he's going to pay players between $3,000 and $10,000 a month. And he's looking for 80 players to fill up 10 teams in this league. He claims he's going to play games at NBA arenas. Uh, so let me start by saying I think LeVar Ball is, is full of it. I think that uh, 95% of what comes out of his mouth is B.S., and designed only to promote him and his brand and promote his uh, his kids and the such. Um, he he's a blowhard. He's a loudmouth. I don't think that this league that he's proposing is necessarily going to get off the ground. There are a lot of things that Lavar Ball says he's going to do or says are true that prove to not be true. But all of that put aside, I think he's talking about the right kind of things, and I think he's bringing up something that matters and should happen. There, uh, we, we discussed this on the podcast a, a few months ago during the, the height of the Louisville scandal. There is a gap between what these payers, these players are worth and what they're paid because they're paid nothing and they're worth something. And something needs to happen to fill that gap. And Does it have to be LeVar Ball, though? No, no. I was going to say, <laughs> I don't want it to be LeVar Ball. I, th I think LeVar Ball is in many ways, the exact wrong person to be doing this. But on the other hand, he's kind of the right person because he has a podium. He has a microphone. We listen. We hate him. We mock him. We think he's a jerk, but we do listen. He does get press. He does get attention. And maybe he doesn't make this work, but maybe someone else does. I think something like this would make sense. There is no reason kids should be forced to go to college if they don't want to go to college. But more than that, there's no reason kids who are worth something should be told their talents are worth nothing until their talents are suddenly worth millions of dollars. It's crazy. And everything that can happen that can remove some of the crazy and make college basketball, pro basketball, AAU, and everything else deal with the crazy is a good thing in my mind. So I'm here saying that I like what LeVar Ball said yesterday. I'm here to say that LeVar Ball is doing something that has already been done. It's called the G League. And I think really what this is in the end is going to be an opportunity to get his sons Mello and Jello back from Lithuania and play in what would be, quote unquote, a, a, a more heightened atmosphere with more eyeballs. The eyeballs are there because he's there. It's not because any of the players. I mean, if you think about this from the player's perspective, you think that – LeVar Ball is going to get 10 arenas, 10 NBA arenas who already own G League teams or are affiliated with G League teams to host a big baller brand league 
that's featuring players that did not want to go to college because they thought this was a better path to the NBA. I, I don't see it. Um, I, I think they need to have bigger expectations, greater expectations, uh, or, or rethink them at least, um, about what this league is going to be. And especially when you, you talk about 80 players, 10 teams, that's eight players per team. Teams get hurt. You know, players get hurt. Players get injured. Players, you know, have to do other things. And if, you know, if we're talking about eight players a team, that is going to really come back to bite them in the end. I think the better situation for them is the ones already laid out as of right now. There needs to be more money pumped into the G League. There needs to be more money pumped into, uh, you know, making that as a viable option for players who don't want to go to college for a year. Uh, because at this point, they they can already do that. They can already go to the G League out of high school. But what this may turn into is a league where players who don't want to finish high school end up in. Uh, just like, you know, LaMelo, who who has been pulled out of his high school uh, to play professional ball. So it's going to be interesting. I, I, I'm not going to go ahead and say I think this will fail, uh, but I, I fear this will fail. Um, and But time will only tell on that. Sam, what's your party chat? My first thing is that I think we originally wanted in this show to have my special watching old basketball clips segment, and I don't think we have enough time to do that today. So we're going to have to put it off. I promise we're going to do it because I am excited to react to old basketball with, with you guys listening to me. We just didn't get a chance today. And thank my, you to everyone who submitted because we've gotten yes. a lot of great submissions over the last few days. Uh, yeah. I've even looked at some of them. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is something I need Sam to watch. Yes. So um, so feel free to keep sending those in. We will do that at some point, hopefully soon. But if we get too deep into, you know, if we can't do it in the next couple of weeks, then it might have to wait till after the season. Regardless, by second, neither of these parting shots is, is especially relevant. The other one is that I saw The Last Jedi and I had a lot of fun, even though it's full of inconsistencies and and ridiculousness. Um, and and for those who who I, I saw a lot of reactions to the movie that were. Uh, along the lines of it was fun, but there were too many ridiculous things. Um, welcome to being an engineer watching a, a, uh, a movie about, about space travel and space flight. <laughs> because, because, because I, I deal with this every single time that I, that I see one of these movies. It's not, it's not just this. This is, this is a problem with every movie. Jason, I don't want to get you too spun up on, on Star Wars, but um, if, you, if you had any reaction or thoughts to that, please feel free to share them. There's been this weird thing that has happened with The Last Jedi. I don't think I've ever seen a movie go through sort of these this phase, uh, different phases, I should say, of uh, of reaction to it. So initially, all the critics came out of the early, early screenings and were, were raving that it was a fabulous, amazing movie. And then the public got to see it. And there was this backlash of people who said it's not, it's anti-Star Wars, that there, there are a number of things. Look, it, I'm not going to get into it on this podcast. We're not a movie podcast, and and I haven't done the exhaustive research that that countless websites have. But there are websites out there that have chronicled the number of ways that the Last Jedi flies in the face of uh, of accepted ways the Star Wars universe works and acts, and the, and and ways characters act and things like that, and and the way a Star Wars movie is supposed to behave, and that in many ways, Rian Johnson the the writer and director of this film, who's a brilliant, amazing writer director. He did Looper, which folks, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen Looper, 
please go see Looper immediately. It's a great, great movie. Um, and, and it's the success of that movie that allowed Rianne Johnson to make The Last Jedi. Anyway, uh, there are folks who say that Rianne Johnson intentionally created a Star Wars movie that would subvert the, the, the traditions of what a Star Wars movie is. And so there was this backlash from tr- diehard Star Wars fans. And now it is turned again. So critics loved it. Fans hated it. And now the fans are loving it again. And it's only been a week. It's only been out for a week because everyone's like, well, well, the backlash is too much. And I sort of fall into that camp. When I first saw the movie, I came out of it and I said, uh, it's a little slow in the middle. There's an entire middle section uh, uh, revolving around a caper on a casino planet that, that is completely unnecessary and makes the movie too long. And I, 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 I was like, God, you know, I, I don't like that that happened. And and so I sort of had some negative things to say about the movie, although I always started my comments by saying it's really good. It's really good. But uh, and so now I've fallen into the camp with a lot of these other folks who say, even though I have criticisms of it, it's a very, very good movie. It's an enjoyable movie. And and the people who are out there saying this is unrealistic or that that's unrealistic. We're, we're, we're talking about a film where the main characters use weapons made out of light and and they move things around with their mind you know of course it's unrealistic don't don't give me that that's just silly that that's that's not a legit criticism we have to accept this in the star wars universe you want to criticize it for other reasons that's fine but saying that saying that princess leia can't use the force like that it's just whoa 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 come on man some people probably haven't seen it yet (laughs) i i saw it on monday um and I've seen all the I've seen all the Star Wars, uh, you know, even Rogue One, all the all the offshoot ones. I, I think the one thing that this reminded me of, I I, I thought it was great. Um, I was one of those people that thought it was great and don't really understand uh, a lot of the hate behind uh, how this movie was how this movie was made. But I, I think the one thing that it reminded me of, and this is kind of a weird weird uh, uh, analogy. It reminded me of the Matrix Revolutions, uh, not Revolutions, uh, Reloaded, the the second Matrix, where everyone came out saying, oh, I hated it. I thought it was stupid. And then when Revolutions came out, it answered a lot of the questions that people had about the second one, and it made the whole trilogy kind of come together. And I think that's kind of, uh, without getting too much into it, it it leaves a lot of open plot lines. Uh, And I think that they're probably going to be answered in nine. Um, But I think I, I really enjoyed the movie as a as as the movie, um, and I thought it was really really good and well put together. Well, the, hold up. The only thing I'll say about what you're saying there is I'm not convinced that everything's going to be resolved. You know, the the sort of questions maybe that still linger from eight will be resolved in nine because um, there's there's a little bit of a one of the things I think that is a little bit of a problem for the Star Wars universe right now is that there are different chefs in the kitchen and and we have jj abrams directing movies that are written by different guys and then rianne johnson picks up the story from jj and rianne writes his own um his own version of it and then then in nine we're going to go back to jj directing and and i think rianne's going to have some contributions to the story but the story isn't going to be specifically from rianne johnson so you you you've got this situation where Think of it. Think of the three movies, the trilogy, as one book. But one guy's writing the first bunch of chapters, and the next guy's writing the next bunch of chapters. Then the third guy's writing the the final bunch of chapters. There's going to be a disconnect 
Um, and I think that's one of the problems that that they're running into right now. Not a major problem because these films are, are well made. and They're making unbelievable box office, but it's at least a little bit of a problem. Um, and I think one way that that uh, Disney is going to try and get around that is they've already announced that Rianne Johnson is going to make a separate trilogy, not going to be about the Skywalker family, but it'll be about something else in the Star Wars universe. And he's going to make all three of those films. So he he will be the final voice on all three of them. Yeah, I, I would highly recommend you see The Last Jedi if you have not yet. Uh, uh, but uh, you, know, hey, you know what? I mean, if we're recommending movies, just really, really quick. Do it. There are a couple of movies that I've seen lately that, that are coming out in the next couple of weeks um, that, that folks need to go see. The first one is Molly's Game, um, which, uh, which is the story of Molly Bloom, who, who was the woman who ran a big Hollywood and then a big New York poker game. Um, and it's written by, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin's one of the best directors. Uh, I'm sorry, one of the best writers in the world. Um, and if this is the first time he's directed a movie. Molly's Game stars Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba. Really good movie. Really well acted, and an amazing story about this woman. But then the one that everyone must see. I just saw a screening of this a couple of days ago. It doesn't come out till early January. Everyone go see The Post. So I'm about to tell you guys who who's in The Post and who who made The Post, and you'll go, Oh my God! I don't need to know anything else about it. So who's the greatest female actress uh, alive today? Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep is in the post. Who's the greatest male actor, actor alive today? Denzel Washington. Tom Hanks. Close. <laughs> I knew it was, was Tom Hanks. Moment. I just wanted to play with you. That was, a, that was a moment right there that you guys yeah. just had. Tom I, Hanks I, is in the post. Who's the, <laughs> most famous, who's the most famous director in the world today? Steven Spielberg. So the yeah. post is Steven Spielberg James directing Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. I, I don't know that you need to know anything else aside from that, but it is an amazing, remarkable film. And it is a, it's the story of how the wash of the Washington Post's role in the Pentagon Papers scandal, which goes back to the early 1970s. And, and look, it's a, it's a really, really important piece of American history, but uh, we're at a time in this country where the media is sort of under attack from from certain large institutions. Let's call the president a large institution. But anyway, this film is is about when Richard Nixon attacked the media. And, and it is a great, amazing film. It is going to get a lot of Oscar nominations. It is my pick to win Best Picture. Um, go see the post. I, I apologize for diverting us so much uh, onto movies from basketball, but I'm telling you folks, go see the post. It actually does look really good. And I'm going to uh, probably see both of them in the next couple of months. Uh, my parting shot that I'm going to do is, is basketball related. Uh, on Wednesday, this, this past Wednesday, or I'm sorry, this past Monday night, um, NBA TV does what's called players only, where it's it basically the, the studio uh, and the games that they call are run by former NBA players. But what they also do is a monthly uh, show uh, that is a conversation between two uh, legendary players. And this month they did Isaiah Thomas, uh, the Detroit Pistons one, not the one that currently uh, sits on the bench uh, injured for the Cleveland Cavaliers and Magic Johnson. And it talks about, their relationship, their friendship through the 80s and how what a lot of people don't realize is they had an estrangement for about 25 years. Um, there were reports when Magic 
uh, contracted the HIV virus and announced it to the world, there was rumors that were spread about Isaiah Thomas, uh, his best friend, uh, not taking too well to that and, and spreading uh, uh, bad information about magic. And because of these rumors, which were uh, proven untrue, um, they kind of had an estrangement for about 25 years. And really, it came out last night, or, or I'm sorry, on Tuesday night, this conversation uh, that they had, an hour-long conversation. It is honestly one of the great like specials that has ever been put together in sports. I think if anyone knows the history between those two guys, the, the friendship that they had was very, you know, very well pronounced throughout the 80s and 90s. I would encourage everybody to go back and watch this special, um, especially at the end of the of the um, special. Magic apologizes for all the hurt that came uh, that strained their relationship, um, and it's a very very powerful moment. So uh, I would highly recommend you know two of the great first of all two of the great players in NBA history, but also two of the great people in NBA history uh, talking about their friendship, and I, I think that is uh, something that will. If you love the '80s, and, and Sam, you should definitely watch this because it talks about. You know, 80s I'm, NBA. I'm I'm actually potentially more excited about this than the post. Yeah, yeah, this is absolutely something that uh, everyone should watch. Uh, and that I think is going to do it for episode 98 of the DBR podcast. Uh, remember, you can check us out on iTunes. You can check us out on Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, uh, and Google Play. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review. It helps us in in Google searches. It helps us. Uh, move up the rankings a little bit and, and make it so more people can find us. Uh, we also appreciate you sending us uh, comments via email. Our email is dbrpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. We've heard from a lot of you over the last couple of weeks, and we thank you for that. Uh, also, check us out on the forums. We're all there. But for now, we're going to sign off. Happy holidays, everybody. Uh, for Sam and for Jason, this is Donald. And now it's time for the Duke Band to take us off. <laughs>